Hey, you're listening to About Time, a podcast produced by Timely, the world's first AI-powered time tracking app. To start tracking your time automatically, head to timelyapp.com. In five short episodes, we're deconstructing the big existential problem of time, exploring if it materially exists or is just a figment of humanity's collective imagination. We've already discovered that there are no natural laws separating past from future, and that clock time is an intellectual invention, that the temporal structure of the world has more to do with how our brains work than with the laws of physics. Be prepared to give up everything you thought you knew about your own brain. I'm Emily, and this is The Psychology of Time. Physicists still can't agree on whether time actually exists. So instead of flowing outside of us, surely time lives somewhere within the human mind. But why exactly do we make time? How do we give order and meaning to what we experience and create a personal account of it? Why is time constantly accelerating and slowing down? And how, without any external clues, are our brains able to predict duration? This episode is all about subjective time the perception of time that is individual to us. Unlike objective clock time, subjective time is all about what goes on inside of us. It is the time we feel and experience. And it's extremely personal and private. Fill a room with 20 people and it will contain 20 different subjective timescales. Subjective time requires us to ditch the structure of our physical reality and instead look at how the human brain works. We need to realise that whenever we perceive something, what we perceive is not objective truth, but rather our brain's best guess at what is causing certain sensations in our body. We might start by asking why our brains would want to make time in the first place. You may be shocked to learn that time processing plays a role in almost all aspects of our cognitive function central to our behaviour and basic survival. In one sense, time perception is functional, helping us time certain motor actions, as neuropsychologist Mark Whitman explains. We live in a world which, physically speaking, evolves over time and events happen in time. So we actually, as an organism, have to be prepared for these events and have to anticipate them, have to react to them. So we have to have inherently timing abilities so to be able to synchronize uh, with the world. Just think about how hard it would be to drive a car or duck out the way of a ball if you couldn't predict duration. But time perception also feeds into our subjective experience of time, which also heavily influences our decision-making. So waiting time uh, is also important, not only this functional way of that we react, but that we, for example, then suddenly feel, oh, something has lasted too long, I have to move on. So the decisions we make every day, our basic ability to interact with our environment, is based on our ability to anticipate and time duration. But how exactly are we doing this? 
How are we even conscious of time passing? We know that our lived experience of time is based on the idea of presenteeism, that only the present moment is real, the past is gone and the future is yet to happen. But we know that the present actually lasts for about two or three seconds. Psychologists call this the perceptual moment. It's the very smallest unit of duration to which we have conscious access, the time you take to integrate perceptual information around you. With each passing perceptual moment, we continuously update information about our environment. And it is this that gives us the idea of an ordered sequence, of a coherent, flowing time. But within this two or three second perceptual window, our brain has a lot to do. Unwittingly, back in the 4th century, St. Augustine touched upon three of the primary psychological mechanisms at work. He expressed that our three tenses are really just shades of one, the first being our present experience of the past, or memory, the second being our present experience of the future, or anticipation, and the third being our present experience of the present, or attention. Memory, anticipation and attention all inform what information we respond to in any given perceptual moment and together construct our individual perception of time. The best way to understand it is to think of a piece of music. We hear a set of notes in succession, but if we only lived in the present moment, it would not be possible to make sense of it. Using the memory of previous notes and anticipation of what is to follow, we are able to stitch all the notes together into a tune. Our brains are continuously making real-time predictions of what will happen and when, and a huge amount of that is based on previous, remembered experience. Memories, in a sense, are a form of time travel. Whenever we experience something new or noteworthy, we lay down chemical traces in our brains, stored and accessible in neurons. They are essentially a biochemical imprint of what we have seen, smelled, learned and heard. And we constantly revisit them. They guide our perceptual system, what information we take from any new environment. You simply can't perceive anything if you don't have memory in the first place to organise it. In fact, at any given moment we are actually only aware of a handful of things. Three or four at most. Everything else is outside of our attention, but we sew these scraps of information together to give an impression of a whole. We already have a lot of knowledge and predictions about what will happen, and using our memories, we throw out hypotheses and test them against what we perceive. So, without us really knowing it, our present is largely dictated by our past. But this notion of memory, this basis of our own narrative of time, is itself extremely fallible. Our brain does not contain a complete record of all our experiences. Memories are stored in tissue that undergoes constant changes like growth, metabolic processes, damage and decay. But even when we access memories, we don't just reactivate a stored file. We are reconstructing an image of it. And each time we reproduce the same memory, we may add or take something away from it. So even our very autobiographical record of time is itself fleeting and inconsistent. If we are constantly recreating our past, what does time even mean for us? 
it gets even weirder if you consider that our memories are informed by a selective attention. There are tons of things going on in any one moment, but we only tune into a few and commit them to memory. Attention is a limited capacity resource, so we selectively attend to relevant stimuli only. Our memory largely informs this, telling us what information is important or novel and what is uninteresting, since we can already fully predict it. So, within this narrow window of attention, which is itself guided by existing memory, your personal history of time is one configuration among billions of potentials. Let's turn to another existential question, the issue of duration. We know that our interaction with the world depends on us anticipating duration. But time is not a material object. We can't see or hear it. We don't have the sensory equivalent of eyes and ears to trace it. And yet our brains can still track its passage. We can predict how long, in clock terms, we spend in a meeting. We can sense when our lunch hour is almost up. But how exactly are we doing this? Originally, neurologists thought it might be down to a type of master clock, that our brain has a central pacemaker that beats out a series of pulses, like seconds. They even gave it a cool name, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's a cluster of 8,000 cells, about the size of a grain of sand, that sits in the hypothalamus, the region of your brain that controls your hormones, nervous system and states like hunger, temperature and thirst. Experiments show that this cluster is controlled by light. It uses visual information throughout the day to regulate your circadian rhythms. But since we're still able to sense the passing of time without visual clues like daylight, this can't account for our ability to estimate duration entirely. Damage to the SCN itself doesn't alter our ability to trace time patterns at the scale of seconds. And further evidence has suggested that visual events themselves are not timed by a single clock, but by several independent ones. So if not an internal clock, then how does the brain keep time? A ton of alternatives have been proposed, but without any solid agreement. Scientists can't say with any certainty which parts of the brain are responsible for processing time. We don't really know how the brain does it. But what we can say is that it's more likely to be spread out over several brain structures, rather than located only in one. A ton of cognitive processes that are not part of any internal clock mechanism contributes to our perception of time, including our memory, attention and decision processes. And new studies show that emotions, bodily states and cognitive effort also have a huge impact on how we estimate duration. So processing time relies on the integrity of the whole brain. We keep time using an interplay of lots of different cognitive functions, and the combination of them is subject to change. This becomes clear when you look at the way our brain actually perceives duration. We seem to have two ways of doing it. The first is perspective. I ask you to estimate the duration for something that's happening now, you focus on the time passing and compare it against your long-term memory of what different time intervals like seconds feel like. The second is retrospective. I ask you to estimate duration for something that's already happened, 
Since you probably weren't paying attention to time passing, you instead call on the amount of processed and stored memories you have for that period and reconstruct the event to judge its duration. In both cases, we rely on memory, which as we've already seen is highly inconsistent and individual. But a whole host of things feed into our overall recollection of the event, like how stimulated we were, what emotions we felt, and what signals our body was firing. Since this setup is so personal, it's not surprising that two people can report wildly different estimates for the same event. But it also means our perception of time is highly volatile. It can easily be influenced and distorted, so the time we experience never flows at a consistent pace. So let's get on to the big question. Why does time seem to speed up and slow down? How come something fun passes so quickly and something boring takes forever? Why does a year seem endless as a child, but ridiculously short as an adult? And if time is something we create chemically in our brains, why can't we consciously control its speed? The different speeds of time we experience is central to the whole idea of subjective time. Unlike clock time, the time you directly experience isn't steady or constant. It's continually being influenced and distorted by a huge cocktail of variables, and age seems to be one of the most obvious. Many people experience an acceleration of time as they age. Weeks and years shrink, and our life passes imperceptibly before our eyes. The older we get, the shorter our hours seem to become. And once again, we see that memory is one of the biggest culprits for the perceived change in tempo. Psychologist Dawa Drasma believes novelty and routine explains this to a large extent. When we're young, everything is happening for the first time. Our first kiss, first alcoholic drink, first trip without our parents. We take on a ton of brand new information and use it to develop and we're going through a load of different biological and psychological changes. But this novelty seems to fade as we get older, as we do things again and again. We don't seem to record them in our memory as vividly. There's no great surprising new information the brain needs to adjust to. It's just like driving on a motorway. Everything along the road looks the same, and nothing sticks out as important or interesting. Hours can pass and we have no real content for them. We don't need to apprehend as much, we don't retain as much, and so we don't encode as much to memory. So our perception of time passing is affected by how interesting a particular activity is judged to be. And that links directly to the amount of memories we have stored for it. We judge time intervals to be longer when the load of varying experiences stored for it is higher. So a year without any striking events will seem shorter and emptier than one with lots of varied ones. Alcohol consumption actually provides a pretty clear example of how this works. So just imagine you're at a party where you don't know so many people, you're not so engaged in conversations, drinking a few glasses of wine or beer, then suddenly speeds up time. It's because retrospectively, because... Uh, your attentional system is not that adequate anymore and you don't form so profound memories anymore. You skip a lot of events 
And so retrospectively, time passes very quickly through alcohol intoxication. Psychologists call this calling on memories to judge time, the reminiscence effect. Whenever you try to put a date to a memory, you look for signpost events in the past, whose time you know well to place them against. These can be individual or common to larger groups, like national days, important family occasions, and milestones in your professional or personal life. It is easier to place events in time when we have more time markers available, and the number of time markers is positively correlated with the actual density of our memories. It's the same reason why time passes so slowly when you're bored. The German language has captured this beautifully with the word boredom, langweil, literally translating as long time. Without stimulation, we pay more attention to time's passage, we become conscious of the time still left to conquer, and we encode less about the present event. Our brain has nothing new to respond to, and we anticipate the excitement of quitting our current state to move on to something more rewarding. So, the apparent length of a past event seems to be defined by the number of clear and intense differences we notice in the events we remember. A period that brings up lots of distinct memories will expand in retrospect, seeming to last longer than an equally long period containing fewer. If you want to fight the acceleration of time with age, try filling your weeks with hundreds of new, different experiences. But attention also plays a part in the expansion and contraction of time. Because in order to estimate duration, we need to pay attention to the passage of time. The question of why time speeds up or slows down is all related to attention. Eh? So if you attend to time at the present moment, time slows down. But if you're, let's say, um, distracted from time because we're in, in a very interesting conversation, if you're watching a movie, we're not attending to time and then time speeds on very quickly. So, when we focus on time passing, our estimates tend to increase. And when we are distracted from thinking about time, time retrospectively seems to have passed quicker. This could be explained by the capacity we have available to process time information. When we pay attention to time, we have more capacity to process it. But when we focus on something else in addition, we have less. We are asking our brain to process more things at the same time. Whenever we attend to an unexpected event, we actually increase our rate of information processing. We put more pressure on our cognitive load. And this means more units are detected during an event, so it seems to last longer. But it doesn't stop there. Just by taking a drug that affects our dopamine production, we can completely change our experience of time. Taking meth or cocaine, which stimulate dopamine production, makes time seem to speed up. Heavy cocaine users tend to overestimate longer time intervals and show more impulsive decision-making, choosing immediate reward over a future one, even when that reward will be greater. And if we take a drug like haloperdiol, which inhibits dopamine production, time seems to slow down. Similar to what people with Parkinson's disease experience, whose dopamine production is impaired by the disease. They show deficits in motor timing, as well as difficulty discriminating time's duration, as if the clock has slowed down for them. <laughs> 
So we know dopamine plays a central role in our time perception. It's all part of the body's reward system. It essentially teaches the brain to predict the time and magnitude of reward in order to take the appropriate action to get that reward. Our dopamine neurons fire more when an event was better than expected and less when an event is worse than expected. It provides us with an indication of how surprised the system was to receive a reward and we use this to help time motor actions and understand time's duration itself. But there's another layer to this mystery and it cuts to the very heart of the human condition. Our psychological state also impacts how quickly or slowly time seems to pass. So far, neuroscience has treated emotions as a sort of modulator for an assumed internal clock. But more research is beginning to establish mood and affective states as timekeepers in their own right. More and more we are beginning to acknowledge that time estimations are inherently emotional judgments. The most obvious example is time dragging when you're bored and flying when you're having fun. While this comes down to where our attention is focused, our emotions and well-being can actually inform what we focus on. Whether we are so bored we focus more on the slow procession of time or so excited we completely ignore it. The best examples of this are in extreme emotive situations. When people are shown provocative and neutral images for the same amount of time, they report being shown the provocative ones for longer. Our perception of time depends on the arousal level induced by the thing we're seeing, as well as the type of emotion it evokes. Being exposed to your worst fear has a strong association with longer time estimates. So if you show a picture of a spider to an arachnophobe, they will likely overestimate the time they were exposed to it. Interestingly, different types of emotion can have dramatically different effects on our time perception with positive ones working very differently to negative ones. So very often it's that, that time passes very quickly is actually um, an indication that we are in a positive flow state. So let's say we have some challenging activities to do. We are then so absorbed in this activity, we lose our sense of self. Yeah, because let's say it could be writing a text, it could be scripting a program, it could be playing a music instrument in a band. It can be in sports, and then you even don't feel time at all. But let's say if we have some more very strong emotions, more uh, related to the arousal system, then we suddenly perceive ourselves more clearly yeah, because we are sort of perceiving our body states, and then time passes very often uh, more slowly. This could, could be really a very highly aroused emotional state, but it could also be something like waiting for the bus and the bus is not coming and then you're sort of perceiving yourself in the situation and then time passes very uh, slowly. So we need to understand that time judgments are inherently emotional judgments and that a subjective time estimation can tell you a lot about the mental state of the reporter. But why do we do this exactly? Why do we experience some events faster or slower than others? Well, since heightened temporal resolution is expensive for the brain, we may only use it for stimuli of probable interest or importance. By making important events run in slow motion, they can be processed in greater depth and allow greater consideration for possible action than for more routine, predictable ones. 
It makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Our time distortions tend to be stress-related, so dangerous or potentially life-threatening situations like road accidents play out in slow motion. Clearly, our brain is extremely alert to the potential threat and accordingly seems to expand our attention so we are better prepared to respond to it. So, how can we explain our subjective experience of time? We know that it informs a very basic mechanism for survival, that memory, attention and anticipation help us form an autobiographical time that is forever updating and responding to new information that these cognitive capacities qualify the time that we remember and the time that we ignore. We know that our experience of time is constantly fluctuating. Our moods, emotions and cognitive load all influence its speed and that fighting the perceived acceleration of time with age essentially requires us to constantly undermine our own memory's prediction of the world. It's kind of uncomfortable to investigate the psychology of time, but it teaches us more about ourselves. That perceiving time in so many different ways is not a design flaw, but an essential part of our humanity. That our experience of the world comes from within. In the words of Jorge Luis Borges, time is the substance from which I am made. It is a river that carries me, but I am the river. It is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. You've been listening to About Time, a podcast produced by Timely, the world's first AI-powered time tracking app. Join me in the next episode well, I'll be exploring the physiology of time, seeing how our bodily clocks and rhythms impact how we experience it. We'll probe into sleep cycles, illness and age, and see how social time inventions like daylight saving can actually negatively impact our biology. In case you missed any of our previous episodes, like the language or physics of time, you can catch them on our About Time page at timelyapp.com slash abouttime. If you like what you heard, leave us a review, share it with someone else, or download the episode to relive it all again. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your time. <laughs>